Welcome to our special bonus episode of Gridwalk that we're calling the Triple Crown Weekend Special Title to be Workshopped post-recording this so you will know the title even though we don't really know the title right now. That's so special. (laughs) But if you haven't listened to the normal Gridwalk episode, it came out Thursday like always. Go and listen to that afterwards. We talk more in depth about all the F1 topics for the weekend as an F1 podcast. So we talk about all the ways Monaco's controversial and whether or not we'll be as controversial this year. We also give our predictions for the Monaco GP. And we talk about how all the F1 teams filled the gap of the race weekend last week. But that's our, our other podcast. So make sure you download, subscribe, do, do all the things like that one. Leave us a comment if you're watching on YouTube. But Triple Crown special. We're going to talk a lot about what the Triple Crown is in detail in a moment. But this weekend, we have the Indy 500 and we have the Monaco GP, which are two of the three Triple Crown races. So we wanted to do a special episode to dive deep into Monaco, dive deep into the Indy 500 from an F1 fan's perspective, but F1 fans who grew up in America knowing that the Indy 500 was a thing. Yeah. Uh, And then we're going to go through an IndyCar rooting guide for the F1 fan. So if you have a passing interest, either after listening to us here, you're like, you know what, maybe I will tune into the Indy 500 because it's this big historic race. We're going to give you a rooting guide based around your F1 interests. So lots to get into today. I'm excited. So we're an F1 show. We're primarily F1 fans. It's really mostly at this point the only motorsports we avidly consume. Uh, But... I wanted to talk a little bit about our experience with IndyCar and the Indy 500 before we get into talking about all of this. So before we decided to do this Triple Crown Weekend special, what was your personal experience with both IndyCar and the Indy 500? So I've heard, I like, oh, had always heard of IndyCar and of course the Indy 500, uh, knowing of the milk tradition is probably one of the, the big things that you always hear about indie, but I haven't really learned too much experience too much. I actually got to basically secondhand experience indie when, you know, you most recently got to go, which we'll I'm sure get into, and in a hundred days to indie. So fairly new to the sport. Again, we're F1 podcast. That's a lot where my interests lie in motorsports, and then my sports interest tends to be in other. <laughs> sports that don't involve cars that go vroom. Uh, so kind of very new to indie, but it's interesting to be coming at it from this perspective and kind of learning the ways that it's different from F1 since I had learned so much about Formula One in that aspect. It's like kind of feel like I'm unlearning things, something that seems so similar. So coming from a very new, fresh perspective. I am very similar. I think the Indy 500 has always been peripherally present in my life um it's like the Kentucky Derby to me like I'm not a horse racing fan I do not watch horse racing but once a year it becomes a part of popular culture and I'll pay attention to the Kentucky Derby and actually interestingly if like it's the horse racing triple crown as well I'm pretty sure 
Yeah. That and is, then, it's also called the triple crown. Yeah. Right. So if there's a horse that is looking like it could win that, then it like becomes more prevalent in my life. And the sport, me and the other sports fans around me will be interested in that. Indy, the Indy 500 has always been the same where it's like, oh, the Indy 500 is coming up. So sports center is talking about it. And I'll- yeah, I was about to say, it's going to be, it's like when a other sport it'd be filed and they're like others in like a gym class or something like obviously not car racing or like horse racing in something but if espn or sports center starting to cover it that's when it's like starting to become in that zeitgeist i mean it's kind of similar how we're like watching formula one growing but like this was just the one it's like a cyclical thing that you could always expect it'll be on like a major tv show it'll just be on tv your dad will just like have it on on the weekends like one of those types of things like major events in the background exactly yeah and actually when people find out that i'm an f1 fan the first thing they ask me is about the indy 500 because in general american knowledge like the they don't realize that all of these like open wheel open cockpit race single seater racing series are different it just all like meshes together it's like like i actually get questions all the time about the three triple crown races it's like oh f1 like are they doing le mans this year and it's like no and then it's like oh f1 like who won the indy 500 and i'm like that's completely different series um so it's interesting that like even if people don't know motorsports like they will always associate with these three races because they are covered so yep. that's, and then to your point, the milk, like, it's always gross. It always looks gross. I mean, it looks cool, fun, great photo, but like, ew. Uh, great marketing. So fun. Go, I mean, don't, not go big milk, not go big dairy. Like, that's weird, but like marketing, interesting, like decision and choice of things. But yeah, it's like that thing in the zeitgeist. Like, that's what my, when me, you know, the F1 spark started, my dad's like, so how, indie. And I'm like, you don't know anything about motorsports, but that you, so if I explain to you the difference, will you understand the difference? Probably not, but tell me anyway. Like, So I did go to my first IndyCar race because I went to Long Beach race because it was driving distance from where I am now. So I think I, I have had two-ish months now to kind of become like a little more knowledgeable about this. But I'm not saying I am knowledgeable. I am. I come at everything from an F1 fan's perspective. Mm-hmm. And I think this year I was very set on, I'm going to watch the Indy 500 this year. This, like, this year I'm going to actively, and I did watch hours of qualifying this weekend. That it was really cool. Uh, so I'm excited to, like, my relationship with IndyCar is the race was fun. And I'm excited to know more about it because it is, really different than f1 yeah it's hearing you talk about qualifying and being like and i love qualifying i love f1 qualifying but mm-hmm. there are some things that like indie does it's fun and it, i would love to see it over here and it's just like wow brianna wants to touch the sacred bit that is qualifying on saturdays and let me be clear right not always or really at all actually I, I probably take all of that back, but I was it. I was so enthralled with Indy 500 qualifying and this whole like two lane system thing that they have that I, I was like, wow, I want to see F1 cars do this because essentially they could run again. Mm-hmm. I, 
I don't know. It's, I'm not going to get into that because that's not what we're talking about today. And I could talk for about 15 minutes about this. Um, but I really enjoyed qualifying. I'm excited to watch the Indy 500. And then I'm excited to have this triple crown back-to-back race experience. Um, I'm excited to talk about all this with you right now. The Triple Crown is the Indy 500, apparently controversially the Monaco GP, which Nicole will probably get into. She was telling me before we started recording, and I now have so many questions. And the 24 Hours of Le Mans. All I know is that only one driver has ever won the Triple Crown, and I'm pretty sure only one team has ever won the Triple Crown. Uh, which is McLaren, which is why they just announced their special livery for this weekend. All four of their Indy 500 cars are running special Triple Crown related liveries. But Nicole, I have no idea where this all started. What are the origins of the Triple Crown? So I searched high and low on the internet. I literally do not know in terms of the name. Like, there doesn't, I cannot find an answer of who started calling it this, why did they start calling it this, like, when officially it became, like, these three races. The one driver who has completed the Triple Crown, including Monica, which we'll get to the definition of all of this, Graham Hill says that it doesn't, he didn't specifically say it doesn't include Monaco necessarily, but he said, he says during, like, a 75 interview it is the F1 World Drivers Champion World Championship for Drivers, Indianapolis and the Le Mans. Twenty four hours is what he. T- and, and for context, like Graham Hill is the only driver to have ever won the triple. Yes, yeah. Graham Hill is the only driver to have ever completed the triple crown, and he says that it includes the F1 Drivers Championship. Either way, he still would be the only driver to have completed the triple crown if you consider it being the drivers championship or if you consider winning monaco and indy and le mans um and he's won monaco five times but then you know senna beat his record in 93 and schumacher tied in 2001 but for like a very long time he was known as like mr monaco dominating monaco so it's very interesting to see that like even he doesn't necessarily include monaco in the title but monaco is so prevalent and huge in F1 history and things, which we'll get into in a little while, that it's it makes sense to be part of this incredible, I mean, triple crown of motorsports and the timing of it all. It's it all just is like a beautiful triangle of chaos. And it also wouldn't, in my brain, not that things in the history of motorsports tend to make a lot of sense, but it doesn't make sense for it to be race race championship. Like it makes sense to me for it to be. Right, like the premier race in each series. Right, right. I think his argument, like some people say, it's like, well, Monaco is just only like one race of the thing. But it's like, okay, it's it's very interesting of perspective. But either way, it just comes down to like an argument of who do you want to say is like the second. Like who's closest to being with Graham Hill. Like it all depends on how you want to look at it that way. And then it just comes down to who's missing a driver's championship and who's missing Monaco. Or but it also depends on the, the yeah. hardest thing to win, which I'm sure there's there's 1,000% no consensus on that. Right. Well, I'll, I'll make an argument either way in a second, but 
Like Fernando Alonso has Le Mans and has Monaco and has a driver's championship, so it doesn't matter, but he doesn't have the Indy 500. But I do think it's interesting of the three races for the Triple Crown, right now F1 is the only one that's closed off. So like anyone can enter in, well, a loose anyone, <laughs> it takes a lot of money to enter into uh, the Indy 500. Or uh, like you could get a seat on a team for Le Mans. Mm-hmm. Like you can't just go to Mercedes and be like, hey, could you do a third car for Monaco? And like, <laughs> hey, so this I- year I want to do this one race and I want to do this thing. And, and thank you. Like, I would no. love if they did that, though. I wonder crazy. if this is my hypothetical, and maybe you have some drivers where this is the case. Like, I wonder if any drivers have won the Indy 500 and have won Le Mans, and they are sitting there like, can I be in a car for Monaco, please? So I can win the Triple Crown? You know what? I don't have that information, but we can <laughs> potentially find that for some content is where my brain is gearing. Um. Editing Brianna might come in with this fun fact now. Hi, editing Brianna here, jumping in from the editing booth to tell you that I did do some follow-up research here. There is one driver in history that has won the Indy 500 and the 24-hour of Le Mans, uh, and it was AJ Foyt, who's actually one of the very few four-time Indy 500 winners. So I did some digging into whether or not he ever got a shot in F1. Um, It's unclear because we're talking about the early 70s, the late 60s. But it seems like he was entered into three various F1 races and he didn't attend. So he never showed up. There was never, he never took the track. And that was all the information I found about it. Uh, He did race in the time where the Indy 500 counted as an F1 race, so it looks like he had three starts, uh, but they're all Indy 500 races, so it wasn't because he was specifically racing in F1. I also don't think AJ Ford particularly likes F1, because as recent as early this week, he gave quotes about... Uh, how little interest he had in watching F1 racing, uh, which I always wonder if that's because he never got his shot and he could be with Graham Hill having won the Triple Crown, or if that's how you know he actually feels about it. But interesting, in all motorsport history, there's just one driver that you look at who's won the other two and not the Monaco GP, and it's AJ Foyt. Crazy. Wild. It is very interesting. And of course, McLaren. I mean, yeah. One driver. So, but it makes sense. One driver, one team. I think the team thing is so hard because teams come and go so much in all of motorsports. So for a team to be like McLaren, to be able to confidently say, yes, this is the same team and we did all the things. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I wonder... I don't know. Ferrari's participating in Le Mans this year. Then they just need to enter an Indy car. Wow, that's a lot to unpack in that thought <laughs> process. <laughs> yes. Okay, here's the question, though. Uh, before, Because I know you have more facts about the history of the Triple Crown stuff. But and I've derailed us a little bit here. 
Uh, which F1 team would you most want to see attempt the Triple Crown? I mean, I want to say Mercedes, but that's just because I'm biased. Like, acknowledging the bias. But, like, yeah. it would be really cool. I Ferrari just gets me nervous. And I don't know if that's just because I'm going into, like, Monaco nervous for Charles. Like, I yeah. just... <laughs> the vibes right now. Yeah, the vibes are just a lot, like, um, uh, I can't really... I don't know. Um... Yeah, I was. I mean, I don't want to say Red Bull, but I just know it'd be really interesting to see what Red Bull does. I was gonna say I think I would love to watch Red Bull go be a disruptor again. Right. Because somewhere Red Bull else. Go do this. Go do it somewhere else. Somewhere else. Well, because Red Bull, I wouldn't consider Red Bull a disruptor in F one anymore. No. The way they were when they came in. Yeah, they're just an established, really good team. So it'd be interesting to watch them like take on other series like that and oh my god i do you think then would it just be like history of repeating itself they need to dive into the first lovely race of the weekend monaco grand prix it's a personal favorite it is one that i always look forward to i know you look forward to it too which yeah. some may take as a hot take and like whatever monaco is a whole bunch of chaos it's a whole it's so based in F1 tradition and history that it's just so aligned. It's so tied into the sport that it's almost like you can't have F1 without Monaco in some type of way. And it is always exciting in some fashion, depending on what factors are at play. Um, like Monaco predates F1 existing. Like it is literally so old and people love old things. <laughs> <laughs> the first it was a, the first grand prix was in 1929 um it was called the it was part of like the european championship and this was pre-world war ii because obviously world war ii happens and like you know no one's auto racing during the war <laughs> like so there's a big pause in motorsports and then shortly after world war ii ends they come back and that's when formula one begins and the FIA starts doing different sort of like auto racing, but there was all different kind of formulas put in place. And then 1950 happens. It's the first year of the Formula One, the driver's championship that we know and love. And it was also the first year of Monaco Grand Prix. So literally from the inauguration there from that we know of, Monaco has been there. Um, it's come to be known of high levels of prestige and glitz and glamour and tons of celebrities and people are watching from yachts. And it's just like, again, it's what Miami was trying to be in a parking lot in real life. Um, it's <laughs> crazy antics off track and the track itself like basically matches that energy so very well. So street circuit, it's unbelievably narrow. The elevation is all over the place. There's a tunnel. There's tight corners. It's it's nuts. It is the only Grand Prix that does not meet the FA's length requirement of 305 kilometers, or if you're an American, 190 miles. Uh, it falls at 161.7 miles to around like 260-ish kilometers, 78 laps. Um, so Monaco just always guarantees something to talk about. Something for the fans to talk about, something to see. It'll never necessarily be what you expect it is, whether it's the weather, whether it's the corners, or 
you know, the yachts. <laughs> and even though we're not talking about all three races this weekend, because Le Mans isn't happening this weekend. Right. Uh, I think really what ties all three of the Triple Crown races together is they're all very old and they're all very hard to win. So if you were explaining to someone, like, well, why is the Monaco GP the one that's in the Triple Crown? It's because it's really hard <laughs> and it's old. Like, yeah. that's the general gist. And, like, the glitz and the glam and how I think every like, there's a lot of feelings about modern-day Monaco GP, which you can go listen to the episode that came out on Thursday to hear our thoughts on. Tease. Uh, but the reason it's so important is because of those two things. Like, it is the hardest driver challenge on the calendar and probably the hardest team challenge on the calendar, too. Because yeah, it, it definitely is. Um, yeah. I mean, like, in terms of drivers on the grid right now, and, like, I mean, the grid is very young, acknowledging that. Yeah. Um, of drivers on the grid, it's Lewis, it. Fernando, Checo, and Max. Um Honorary mention to Seb and Danny Ricardo. I had to bring up my Monaco hat today. Um, Lewis has only won it three times, which mm -hmm. if you think about how dominant Lewis has been in the sport, like it just shows you how hard that race in particular is to win. You go to any other track and normally Lewis has won at that track more unless he just hasn't raced there enough. And it's like a newer track. Like he can't have won in Miami more than that. It's physically impossible. But if you like compare that to Silverson and the amount of times he's won there, like it's just really a really hard race to win. Yeah, it's incredibly difficult. And in terms of teams, like McLaren has such an unbelievable like dominance and wins at this track, but also acknowledging that like a lot of that was like the Prost Senna years right. and like that there's like they like eighty four to ninety three. It was like either like Prost or Senna. Like it so and that was just of the times, but like that's the facts. Yeah, F one records are so difficult because there's just such eras of dominance. Mm -hmm. And I also always find it interesting that this is one of the few tracks that Mercedes didn't dominate at because that's not how they built their cars. They built their cars for like every other circuit on the calendar, and we're like, all right, Red Bull, you can win Monaco, and Red Bull said, thank you. <laughs> we get to go in the pool yeah I think Monaco is also just such a specific tech challenge that's like teams bring Monaco specific upgrades that they won't use at any other circuit but they just need that much downforce and that much cornering power that's not the right word to put here i know what you mean yes it's i mean ability to turn the car <laughs> ability to corner right uh, um so historically we're in a cost cap era but people could bring essentially entirely different cars to the monaco gp because of the specific nature of the track and how again hard it is to win like i think i will never when people talk to me about not liking the Monaco GP, I'm like, what are you talking about? This is one of the most difficult races to win on the calendar. And there's so much skill, whether it's the engineering of the car, the car setup to then the driver's execution. This is one of the few racetracks we have on the calendar that's like, wow, the skill to not mess up. It's all about the skill to not mess up here. 
And so many of like the biggest moments are uh, at, like at Monaco have been like, oh my gosh, they you know crashed in qualifying. This was their pole position, and uh, this was their position, you know, for the race. And then the overtakes are like having to deal with some kind of issue on the track and like being able to make such unbelievable comebacks. And it just says so much more about a driver when they're able to produce some sort of comeback like that on a circuit like Monaco because it seems near impossible. Plus, the good news is there's rumors that we're going to get smaller cars come 2026. So that, that will improve things overall. But I think my biggest thing about talking about Monaco in the context of the Triple Crown is I wish Monaco was a little more like the Indy 500, where we could have Monaco-specific bids in the field and people come over on, and participate in this race. And I understand, like, you don't, you know what, hold on, pause. One, two, three. Thank you for leaving the comment and the engagement about why that couldn't work. I 100% understand why that can't work. Now, let me give you my actual pitch for it. I think that all 10 teams should be required to race a third car because definitely what we need is more congestion on the Monaco circuit. And then... Um, was, yes, those corners need more cars. Put more cars in the tunnel. Definitely a great idea. Or Monaco shouldn't count towards the driver's championship. It can only count towards the constructor's championship. And they have to send, if, if we're committed to this really silly thing where the Monaco GP and the Indy 500 always have to be on the same day, I think there should have to be swaps. I think every year... F1 needs to send a driver to the Indy 500 and an Indy T and then they get to pick and draft an Indy driver to come race at the Monaco GP. Because I do want more people trying to go for the Triple Crown. And I, it, so we need more IndyCar drivers able to race in Monaco. Yeah. And drivers able to race in Monaco. The only reason why you can't just have like Monaco be like an only constructors winning piece is because it'll then just like, but you need that. Yeah. Right. I guess you could think of it that way, but uh, that would be chaos, and uh -huh. I kind of love it. That would be, wow, so many people would hate it, and I would love to see that. Right, and I just, I want to be very clear that, like, if this, maybe this is the first time you're listening to Gridwalk. Like, I, I understand that that logistically does, wouldn't make a lot of sense. I'm just throwing out something that sounds fun. I like throwing around goofy fun ideas, then maybe someone will have a smarter idea to actually make this happen. <laughs> actually implement this and do this this way. Like <laughs> My whole motorsports philosophy is more fun, please. Yeah, I mean, Monaco, just the wild moments of Monaco are always like some of the best to like look back on. I think how many times have I, do I reference Kimmy, you know, having to retire and then he's just like, all right, gonna go to the yacht like that's right. it's it's so iconic Senna basically did the same thing yeah he like you know crashes I'm gonna go home she gets out of the car it's like all right yeah that's, it's so it's wild they can just like go on home because everyone lives there you know <laughs> I also like races that the drivers really care to win I think yeah. that's why we love watching drivers at their home race because they really care to win and it means a little bit more. And Monaco was always that. Like, if you get a new winner like we did last year, like, they're going to cry. And I think that level of emotion around a race. So even if maybe, like, a portion of the F1 fan base doesn't love Monaco so much anymore, 
Um, I just will always love it for that reason. Like I love watching athletes really care about something. Yep. Yep. It's, it's, it's always like a movie ending moment. It, there's a, like the best clips are always from Monaco and it is, there's a different vibe. There's a different energy. The drivers care differently because it's Monaco and because it has this historical significance to this sport they dedicated their lives to like yeah i get it same it has to be really sick to win monaco couple of acknowledgements up front um as we've said through this neither of us longtime diehard indycar fans both very new to this uh we are not experts nor are we trying to be experts essentially what this is going to be is me (laughs) who knows a little more than Nicole, telling Nicole all the things that I would have sent her on a voice note. So she's well-informed going into the Indy 500, or at least as informed as I am. Uh, I want to shout out at the front that Donut Racing Racing Show did a fantastic episode um, about the connections between F1 and the Indy 500. And Elizabeth Blackstock did a fantastic article that she's posted all links all over her social media about a Formula One fan's guide to the Indy 500 and IndyCar. If you are at least a little bit interested in this or something I say here sparks your interest, go check out her materials. They're way more in depth. She is way more educated than I am on this. Uh, her but really, energy on that episode made me be like, I want to, I need to watch this. Right. <laughs> Um, and this episode right now came to be because I was like, Nicole, I'm super excited to watch the Indy 500. Can I tell you all this information? And then we both were like, let's just record that on the podcast and we can tell everyone this information if they're even a little bit interested. Uh, so I'm going to start with IndyCar versus the Indy 500. Because this is the weirdest thing at least for me, when I first was like, all right, I'm going to go to the Long Beach Grand Prix. I'm going to start to explore this interest. And you'll notice very quickly that everyone talks about the Indy 500 and no one talks about any of the IndyCar championships. Mm -hmm. And all the drivers seem to only care about the Indy 500. And essentially in all of my research, this is because IndyCar's history, unlike F1's, is a lot less linear. There's a lot of open wheel racing series. At many times there were two because there were splits in the series. Then there were mergers and then there were splits. There were mergers. So the actual championship for the IndyCar championship has been very inconsistent throughout history. But the Indy 500 has been very consistent throughout history. Um, The most recent one that you'll hear IndyCar fans reference a lot is the 2008 merger. For that reason, the modern day driver's championship really only goes back to 2008. And you'll actually hear drivers. So Joseph Newgarden is one of the most accomplished drivers in IndyCar history and is a multi-time champion, but has never won the Indy 500. So he acts like he's never won anything. It's true. That's that's such like a, a sad statement. Right. But that's a lot about how big of a deal. Indy 500 is. So much so that their drive to survive equivalent is called 100 Days to Indy, not the Indy Car Championship. Let's see who wins. No, like they're tracking the drivers to what they always refer to as the month of May. So when you're watching social media content or people talk about this, you'll be like, it's the month of May. It's almost the month of May. We're in the month of May. And it's because the Indy 500 is like a race 
with a hundred hours of practice. That's crazy. <laughs> it just be the month of May. Like you right. could just have the entire sport be just only in May. And it, yeah, that's the, imagine that. Forever. The last example I'll make of this is that when drivers win a race before the Indy 500, the first question they get seem to get asked by a reporter is, how do you think this will affect your efforts in the month of May? Or is this going to help your momentum going into the month of May? It's not, congratulations, you won the Long Beach GP. How are you feeling? How does this, uh, think, how does this lead into your championship? It's like, how is this going to affect you at the Indy 500? Uh, also, we've alluded to this a couple times, but there are drivers who participate in the whole series, and then there are drivers who are just participating in the Indy 500. Imagining that in F1, which obviously, again, different sport, but just like yeah. entertaining that idea would be bananas. Just right. like, goodbye. That was all. Just this month of May. That's all I wanted. This leads me to, okay, how is that even possible? Let's talk about the car. Let's get nerdy for a second. This is a spec series. They're all racing the Delara. Delara. You know, I think that's one of those words that I've never actually had to say out loud. I just read and type all the time. You just see it and it has like a noise in your head. And that's right. exactly what you think it sounds like. Yeah. The Delara DW12. It was introduced in 2012. So the really interesting thing is that they've been racing this car and particularly racing this car at the Indy 500 for over 10 years now. Teams know it like the back of their hand. So not only do they know this circuit incredibly well, but they know this car really well. The easiest way to think about this car, because it it's like not, it's spec. It's a spec car, but that doesn't mean the teams can't make a difference. Um, think about it. I'm going to put this in F1 terms. Indie car fans don't get mad at me. I know, I know it's more complicated than this, but F1 teams can design parts of the car and they can control setup on the car. So like the different things they do in a race weekend, what we call setup, IndyCar can't bring new parts to the car, can't change the car, but they can change setup. So they okay. can change things like ride height, details about the, how the suspension works, um, weight placements. Like in F1 cars, we talk a lot about how if you're underweight and then you can control where the weight is on the car with additional weights. So they can do that in IndyCar. Wing use and angle. Also, IndyCar, interestingly, particularly for this circuit, they have aero packages that they give to all the teams. It's like, hey, here's all these additional wings that can create downforce. And then the teams can choose whether or not they run those wings, how they run those wings, when they run those wings. Because interestingly, IndyCar doesn't have Park Ferme. So that's everything. That's like baseline, throw in, like, here's here's your, like your foundation to stand on. Here's your cheat sheet. Here's your index card of IndyCar, Indy 500. Right. You're watching the race. Here are some things that confused me about watching IndyCar races because they're different than F1 races. Uh, for starters, just know that they refuel in their pit stops. So their pit stops are slower. They're about seven to eight seconds, uh, but they actually don't have any incentive to make them go faster because that's the length of time they need to refuel the cars anyway. So everyone has to do it anyway. Like no one's not refueling. Yes, yes. Um, because, so they're actually playing an interesting strategy game of, so how often do we need to pit? 
Um, do we want to put more fuel in the car? So therefore the car is heavier, but then the driver can go flat out. Or do we want to put less fuel in the car? The car will be lighter, but then the driver needs to conserve fuel. And you'll actually hear a lot over the radio about their chief strategist telling them like, hey, you need to like save fuel here or no, you can go flat out. Like that's a common uh, strategic thing you'll hear. Um, and you'll also hear a lot of, so actually like think of it like in F1 when uh, Carlos in like had to save his tires. So he had to slow down. Yeah, like, this sounds like tire strategy. <laughs> right. Essentially like fuel saving is like tire saving. And like when F1 drivers have to like hit a lap time, it's exactly the same, except it's more about fuel than, and, but I actually do think that it's, since it is double layered, it's like tires and fuel. And so IndyCar drivers have to care about both. Right. Got it. Yeah. I was like, cause you still have to care. They still have tires. <laughs> they don't have DRS. They have pushed to pass. So the interesting thing is that it's not a uh, distance base. Drivers can use their push to pass allotment at any point. They have a certain amount of seconds that they basically get a little bit of an engine boost. Um, think of it like it, it does, it feels a little Mario Kart. Like you press the fast button, you got the, you got the start. Yes. <laughs> yes. They do rolling starts, so there's no standing starts. So don't be surprised when all of a sudden they just go, like, they've been going in circles, and the guy is like, green flag, go! And you're like, oh, okay, great, they're going. It started. Before we get into storylines, drivers, rooting guide. Um, hi, my bias is I root for Colton Herta and Pato O'War. Colton Herta is from Los Angeles, that is Southern California, that is where I live. Think it's fun to root for him. Pato Award is better at social media than any driver. Period. Take the series out. He is unbelievable at social media and marketing. Love it. He has a so, corgi. I was gonna say his dogs, both of his dogs have social media accounts. They're fantastic follows. Please. It's like, what is it? Oh, I don't remember the names of the dogs, but it's a German Shepherd and a Corgi. Um, I also just like to point out before we start, like how great Pato Award is at social media. <laughs> he is so far and away the uh, most popular driver that actually the AP put an article out about this today and I'm pulling up the stats. Maybe. There it is. Mm -hmm. And I purposely didn't send this to you because I wanted to surprise you with this stat. Oh, I'm excited. Pato Award IndyCar merchandise sales are nearly 35% higher than the next closest driver. 35? Mm-hmm. That's insanity. Right. He is... I internally, like with the people in my life, joke that... Pato Award is the is the marketing arm of IndyCar. I mean, and he he's a great marketing arm. He's just so fun and interesting, and like knows what he's doing. Right. Uh, so that's my bias in all of this. Essentially, is but um, wanted to take this from an F one angle. 
but also give everyone like the big storylines going into this. So thing you should know is that in IndyCar, there's two dominant teams and it's Penske and it's Chip Ganassi Racing. So just know, even if they're not on pole or they're further back, like those are the two dominant teams. Penske has won more Indy 500s than anyone else. Chip Ganassi Racing has won like the last three or four. Like they, honestly, Chip Ganassi Racing for the 500 is the team to beat, period. So now if you pick any of those drivers, you're picking a, uh, like, it's like picking Red Bull this season. That's a real, except more competitive, but it's a really safe bet. Um, then you have a second tier, which is McLaren and Andretti. I will point out that McLaren has had a fantastic qualifying for the Indy 500. Andretti has not. And I think those are just like some baselines you should know going into this. But uh, I figured, Nicole, how random should I be or organized should I be in going through this rooting guide? Uh, on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being most random, I say 9. Okay. Okay. Then we're... Got it. I can do that. I can do full randomness. The organized thing was that I was going to go through the top 12 drivers, which is essentially like getting into Q3. But we're not doing it in that order. We're going to go completely random. All right. First thing. If you were the type of person who liked Red Bull when they came into F1 as the fun disruptor team trying to shake up the grid, then you should pick any of the four McLaren drivers to root for this weekend. When I was in uh, the paddock at the Long Beach GP, McLaren was the only team that played music while they were working. McLaren is the fun team in IndyCar. I know, shocking, confusing, but true. <laughs> I would recommend Pato for all the aforementioned reasons. Alexander Rossi is actually has a huge F1 connection. He has, I'm not going to go through it all right now, um, but up until Logan Sargent, Rossi was the last American to race in F1. He really got a short end of the deal and has shown how good he is in IndyCar. So much so that he won the Indy 500 his rookie year in IndyCar in 2016, having never raced an oval before. Insanity. That's crazy. This is his first year with McLaren. Um, and then there's Felix, who's the third full-time McLaren driver. Everyone thinks that he's going to lose his seat at the end of the season in IndyCar, and McLaren's going to shuffle him to Formula E. But he is the highest qualified uh, McLaren driver for the Indy 500. He's starting P3, which is row one, because it's three drivers a row in uh, the Indy 500. Yes. So if you're rooting, if you want underdog fun team, Felix is actually a good one. All right. If you are the type of F1 fan that liked McLaren in the Ron Dennis days, then you should root for anyone on Team Penske. Team Penske has this thing that I couldn't find the origins of that's like Penske perfect. They're like the buttoned up, like we are the best drivers. I literally refer to Joseph Newgarden as Captain America. I don't need to explain more. Like Captain America in the Marvel movies, Joseph Newgarden. So they're traditionally not, they don't, the team itself doesn't give off the most like fun vibes, but they're very good. 
And the qualifier to that is that Scott McLaughlin and Joseph Newgarden do a show called Bus Bros, which I will describe as incredibly fun vibes. So, so much explosions. <laughs> so many explosions. Really fun and entertaining. I actually, I put down like my assumption when Nicole started to look into this. I'm like, Nicole's going to be a Joseph Newgarden fan. Yeah, I'm not opposed. I'm not, I'm not off the bandwagon there. I just think you are going to love Bus Bros is essentially what I think it is. <laughs> Scott McLaughlin is also an interesting character. So he's a three-time supercar champ. Uh, and he just asked, he wanted to come and start doing single-seater racing. And this is his second or third season and is really good, has already won a race this season. So he's just one of those guys, like if you like race car drivers that uh, can do multi-disciplined and it's kind of like harkening back to the old days where drivers would just switch series all the time, Scott, he's also one half of Bus Bros. He's very popular. If you want a safe bet for the win, root for Chip Ganassi Racing. Um, I will point out that Chip Ganassi Racing has the driver on pole, which is Alex Pillow. If you, as an F1 fan, remember our Oscar Piastri saga from last year, Alex Pillow did that in IndyCar, except it was as if uh, Oscar Piastri was now driving for Alpine. And the funny thing is that Alex Pillow wanted to be driving for McLaren. It was a McLaren and Chip Ganassi racing. So when you saw these people online, be like, this is the second time this scandal has happened with McLaren when the Piastri stuff was going on? How's this? It's just that, like, two nickels meme. It's just, you know. Right, right. <laughs> um, the interest, so Alex Pillow is in this lame duck year. Everyone pretty much knows he's going to go to McLaren, but he's not allowed to negotiate with them for this contract that we all know already exists until September. But he's won a race this season, is now on pole for the Indy 500, could likely win the Indy 500 for Chip Ganassi Racing, a team that he wants to leave. What a crazy storyline that would turn out to be if and when he does it. Uh-huh. Part of me is rooting. Like, if a Chip Ganassi racing driver is going to win, he would be my personal rooting interest because of the chaos that it would create. If you really like rooting for Alex Albon specifically as a Williams driver, then you should root for Callum in the Indy 500. So there, Who Goes Racing is a two-car team that is very, very new, is not a fast team, but have had a really fast start this season. And it's mostly because Callum's really great. So much so that when his contract's up this year, he's like, everyone says it's going to be one of the craziest bidding wars we've ever seen for a top team to get him into a car. Callum is an F2 driver. You might know him because he's kind of screaming meals adjacent. Um, he also posted that he was upset about the repeal of Roe v. Wade. So I like Callum. I think he deserves support. <laughs> uh, interesting storyline going on with Callum's car. So they have the car they race all season, and then they have a car that they're specifically building for the Indy 500. Remember when I talked about all this practice time? Well, Callum got in the car for all this practice time and just 
kept saying that the car was wrong and felt weird and felt wrong. The night before qualifying, they agreed, decided they had to completely scrap that car. So they did, because it was unsafe, rebuilt his car overnight in the practice the morning before qualifying were his first laps in this brand new car. So he had to do his... The setup that other drivers spent 30 hours in the car for, he did in 12 laps and easily qualified for the race. That's Incredible. Sick. If you want to root for a rookie, root for Peterson. He was the only rookie to get into the Fast 12, which again is like getting into Q3. And he posted the fastest rookie qualifying time ever at the Indy 500. If you want a driver with a strong F1 connection that has a good chance to win, you should root for Marcus Erickson or Alexander Rossi. Erickson won the race last year. If you want to root for a driver with a strong F1 connection that doesn't have a great chance to win, root for anyone on the Andretti team. And if you want to root for an underdog win that isn't impossible, I'd pick any non-Penske or Chip Ganassi car that's in the top 12, essentially. Um, because even though McLaren has somehow gotten all four of their cars in the top 12, they're still going into this, the underdog. The last thing is there is one driver in the field that has won the race four times, which is the maximum amount of times that an Indy 500 driver, a driver has ever won the Indy 500. I said that backwards the first time around. And that's Castronovis. So if you really want to root for history, winning a fifth time would be the most ever. Because there's only, and there's only a couple who've ever won it four times. So Nicole, who are you rooting for? I got, I, I, I mean, I think I want to root for Pato. I mean, I kind of just, it's worth the bias was before. It'll give me more, you know, content with his dogs. That's where my, that's where it is right now. But I'll, I'll, I'll report back after the weekend. And I'll let you know. Thank you for watching this bonus episode of Gridwalk, this extra special triple crown indie car Monaco preview. It was a whole bunch of fun. Um, go watch the full episode from Thursday. If you haven't already, you can watch it now. It is live wherever you find your podcast. Let us know who you're rooting for in the comments section below. DM us on all of our socials at Gridwalk Show. Let us know who your rooting interests are, not only for the IndyCar 500, but also who you're rooting for for Monaco. And we'll see you next Thursday for our regular Gridwalk episode.